was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, it's John Warlow. I wanted to record this quick message to let you know that I've got a new book that's now available called The Art of Selling Your Business. And really, it's a distillation of some of the best practices I've heard from some of the smartest entrepreneurs I've interviewed for this show. You know, having done now more than 300 plus interviews for Built to Sell Radio, I've seen that there's this small group of founders who seem to really have incredible exits, ones where they make life-changing money from the sale of their company. And what I've tried to do is really analyze what are the transferable lessons among that small cadre of winning exits. I've put those into an action plan, a bit of a, a just add water recipe card for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. The book is called The Art of Selling Your Business. It's available anywhere you buy books. So you've probably been pitched by these guys, growth capital or growth equity partners, right? The pitch is, hey, we'll invest some money in your business and we'll grow it together and it'll be worth a whole lot more after we invest our funds. One of the questions I've always wondered is when you take money like that, can you put anything in your genes? Or do you have to invest all of the outsider's money into your company? My next guest, John Morris, answers that question, along with many other questions, because he took two rounds of investments on the way to selling his company. He built it up to a 250-employee digital marketing agency. Lots to learn in this episode with John Morris. Listen for the acid test he used to evaluate hiring employees. Love that. He talks a lot about raising money and some of the difficulties he found raising money, in particular working with these follower investors he refers to. He'll talk at length about what a growth capital partner is and the investments they make and why he decided he was ready to sell. Here to tell you his entire story is John Morris. John Morris, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Tell me about Rise. What, what, did, you, what did you guys do? Uh, sure. We were uh, one of the largest independent digital marketing agencies. So we built websites, helped drive traffic to those websites, and make sure that it was the right traffic and converted to customers. Got it. And, and clients would have been big companies or small? Yeah, or we're generally dealing with medium to large corporations. Uh, you know, it started with smaller companies, but as we scaled, it became larger at the end of the day. And billing model, were you billing by the hour project? Like how did you structure your commercial relationship with clients? So there's basically three divisions. There's the analytics division, the media division, and the web development division. The media division, it generally would be a percentage of media with a floor. So there was some type of retainer based on the scope of hours that we would put into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the analytics and the web development were generally fixed fee projects based on estimates of how many hours it would take to complete one of those projects. Got it. So both the analytics and the web 
development side of the house was man competitive space like how did you guys set yourselves apart because i mean there's you know digital yeah. agencies are kind of a dime a dozen i don't mean that in a pejorative way i mean there's a no, ton it, of competitors uh it's a couple things one uh when it comes to differentiation you know as you said it's a very crowded space what i always say is that you have to have an and to your uh, to your question of what makes you great so our vision was to be the leaders in leveraging data to help brands make smarter marketing investments. Now, I promise you, if you line up 50 other digital agencies, they are all going to say they're data-driven. <laughs> I was going to say, sounds kind of similar. Yeah, I've heard yeah. that before. So to yeah. me, it's the, the and, it's the follow-up that matters. Uh, so in order to get a job at Rise, you have to take an analytics exam. It has a 22% pass rate. You are not allowed to even interview with us if you don't pass the exam. The second thing is uh, data-driven is a very broad word. What type of data do you mean? There's media data, there's customer data, there's pricing data, there's inventory data, there's competitive data. Uh, I would say Rise, although is uh, power users of all data, uh, is probably the best at leveraging media data than any other company out in the industry. Uh, we are well into the eight figures of building a proprietary framework that brings in dozens of different data sources. And what that is able to do is identify waste that you're spending in media at a faster rate than anybody else can. And it's also able to help you redeploy that media to areas that are scalable that are generating a positive ROI. So how important was the yeah. proprietary analytics platform in the sale of Rise? Uh, my instinct is it was probably pretty big. You know, it, it's a, you know, at the end of the day, we've had tremendous success at growing the organization. The financials are, uh, you know, are, are great. The numbers are moving in all the right directions. Uh, but, you know, what you're looking for is something that's sustainable and something that is unique uh, that doesn't make you a generic digital agency. And that's what, you know, connects the technology we built was really able to do. And and what was the capital structure? I mean, did you have partners? Did you have investors? How did you structure the kind of financing? Yeah, so up until 2016, it was 100% owned by me. It was bootstrapped. Uh, in 2016, we took a minority investment from a company called Quad. It used to be Quad Graphics. It's the largest printer in the United States. Uh, and then in 2018, we sold majority ownership to Quad. Uh, and ultimately now the capital structure is it's predominantly Quad. Got it, got it. And, and as, as you were bootstrapping the business prior to 2016, what was your sense of what it might be worth, not at a dollar, per, you know, dollar amount, but more as a percentage of revenue or multiple of earnings? Like, did you have any sort of benchmark that you were working off of of what you thought it might be worth? Well, you know, my original exit strategy was I was going to die one day. <laughs> and so I, I'm a big believer that you build a great company. You don't worry about the exit. And uh, to give you a little bit of the philosophy I had of Rise is I used to run a ton of marathons. And when you do marathon training, it's 18 weeks long. And every week you do a long run and your first long run is six miles. And then the next week it's seven. And then it goes down to five. And then it goes up to nine and then 10 and then down to seven. It keeps on going. 
And I took that same approach to running my business where I thought of it as a marathon as opposed to a sprint. And rather than weeks, I thought of it as years. And rather than uh, miles, I thought of it as dollars. So the idea is that every June, I would think about the investments that I need to make to put up a phenomenal year the next year. And so the way I look at it is a typical agency makes about 20% uh, EBITDA relative to revenue as a ratio. We were between zero and five for many, many years. And uh, zero and 5% EBITDA? Exactly. Okay. Um, and the reason why is I really thought of myself as the private equity investor. So I was taking that 15 to 20% and investing it back into sales and marketing. You know, one of the things that, you know, I'm actually really proud of is I believe our ratio of sales and marketing relative to revenue had to be one of the highest in the industry. And, you know, I, I always explain that you can't wish growth to happen. You have to make it happen. And so by having this determination to continually invest in sales and marketing, and then make sure that you're getting smarter and smarter at how you invest that sales and marketing, you're able to fuel growth. What conversations happen between you and your spouse around that strategy? Here's the thing. One of the things about being a service <laughs> company owner is the margins are great. And usually you get to pull a lot of that money out of the business and buy a fancy house and take the kids to whatever. Yeah, But, but when you're pouring it all back in, uh, there's limited resources. So how did you guys kind of come to terms yeah. on that? I can't tell you how many times she said, couldn't you just take the revenue from this client and have it go to us? And, you know, I, I look at it as uh, every year uh, we were able to increase compensation. Every year we were able to do well because the company was doing well. Uh, but, you know, the answer was she is beyond amazing. From the very beginning, you know, when I first started dating her, I had a budget of like $17 a day to not go uh, into debt. And so a lot of our dates were at fast food restaurants in the beginning years. So she's been by my side and uh, weathered a, a lot in terms of me wanting to invest in the company. And, and so where does that come from? Because, you know, I'm just trying to square two edges here. So on one hand, you're saying your thought was that you were going to build the business forever. You're going to die in your boots yeah. or whatever. I can't remember what you said, die in your, at your desk. My exit strategy is I will die one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet at the same time, you're reinvesting everything. So that doesn't seem to square. I, I've seen that from a lot of companies where they reinvest a ton in sales and marketing to have an exit. Yeah. Likewise, I've seen people say, I want to, you know, I want to die at my desk, but they're scraping out all the profits. So yeah. that doesn't make sense to me. Help me help me get through that. Well, you know, a couple of things is I believe a job of a CEO is to grow an organization. Um, you know, I always talk about there's two versions of an individual who owns 100% of a company and also is the CEO. Like that you have to recognize that you hired yourself as the CEO. And the CEO's job is to max my shareholder value. And so, although I'm not necessarily looking for an exit, uh, I, I'm looking to create something great. And if you don't invest in innovation and you don't invest in your brand and you don't invest in building a sales and marketing infrastructure, 
it's hard, hard to build something great. Um, so I, I think it really comes down to is I'm a builder. You know, I was like, I, I wouldn't be satisfied if my company was just stagnant every single year and maybe I was taking good money out, but we weren't building something special. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So what changed in, in 2016 uh, when you brought in Quad? What were the, the triggering events there? You, you know, the main triggering event was uh, if you are looking to build technology and you want it to be real and you want it to be a true differentiator, it's just expensive. And we did not have the money to invest in sales, marketing, and innovation to the degree that I wanted to build it. And so uh, I had to do some soul searching. You know, that's a big, big shift from, you know, bootstrapping an organization. But going back to I wanted to build something special, I felt that it was the right time to do so. And so how did you guys, you know, think about valuation? Again, we, we don't have to get into the actual number itself, but there must have been some process through which you put a price on the business. What, what was that you, like? You know, at that time period, uh, it was much more, can I get a multiple of revenue, um, which... You know, I, I think every entrepreneur really wants to focus on, can you get a multiple of revenue? Uh, the reality is that when it comes to an agency business, uh, your multiple is generally going to be between five and 15 times EBITDA. And so, um, you know, in, in the first round, I think it was more revenue focused and we're explaining like, look, we're investing. I'm not going to sit there and do all the things that people do to maximize EBITDA during a specific time period, you know? Um, and, uh, and so it was more of a, you know, I think a very fair valuation very, where based on our growth rate, based on where we're headed, based on the investments in technology is kind of how we were initially structured. And did you guys try to normalize your profit and loss statement and say, you know, if we scrape out all the sales and marketing we're investing in to grow, like, look how much profit we get. Did, did you kind of make that argument or what was that like? Um, I, I believe we did, you know, I'm, I'm go, it's going back now five years, but um, you know, we, we put a really good financial packet together that, you know, was incredibly well detailed. It explains our gross margin incredibly well. It explains, all the investments that we're making from sales, marketing, and technology. So uh, there was really good insights in terms of how we structured, how we invested everything. And did you shop the deal? Like, were there other potential investors in addition to Quad, or was it just Quad at that time? We we did. We shopped the deal quite a bit. And how was that process? I mean, what was the? I'm always curious to know because every acquirer looks at a business differently and has different value drivers and things. How, how, like, what was the range in valuation? Again, we don't have to actually talk about the number itself, but was, was there a big range between the buyers or the, the investors at that time in terms of how they valued the business? Was it like 10% plus or minus? Or was it like 100%? I, I, would, say, you know I, mean? I would say that it was probably plus or minus 15%. You know, oh, so it, it, it was- close. Yeah, we were reasonably in the ballpark. What I would say is a couple things. For anyone who is looking to raise money, it's hard, just to be honest. Uh, I consider myself a really good salesperson at a great company, at a great product. What you learn about investors 
is, especially when you go to institutional investors, is that they have LPs that they're limited partners who put in all the money and they make promises of, we are going to invest in these types of businesses. And so as someone who's brand new to this, it took a long time to find companies that are interested in investing in, um, in service businesses versus technology businesses. You know, I had one person that was extremely interested, but had a conflict and couldn't invest in it. Uh, so uh, it was a lot longer and harder than I thought it would be to put the original fund together. So it sounds like it was hard because number one, um, this is your first time through. Number two, it's a service business. And sometimes investors are looking for technology businesses, as an example. Yep. Did, did you try to sort of evolve the positioning of the business and say, yeah, I mean, we are a service business, but let's look at all the technology we built in how, I mean, did you make I, that case? I tried. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think of one person who's incredibly sharp, you know, and he sat there and he looked at, um, you know, our retention rate of customers and he compared it to the retention rate of software companies. And it's like, at the end of the day is like, if you have the right person who's asking the right questions, or if you look at the margins, like the financials and the data generally doesn't lie. So for a sophisticated investor, you can try to make the argument, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, we have incredibly solid margins for a service-oriented business uh, that's technology-enabled. You know, how many how many employees did you have at that stage? You know, around the time you're negotiating the first round with Quad, I'm guessing 125 to 150. Okay, so you're you're already a, a good-sized company at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Got it. What else was hard, or maybe I'll ask it a different way. What else was surprising to you? Um, I mean, I've looked at your bio before yeah. the uh, the interview, and I noticed that you went to like one of the top business schools in the country. Like, I, I'm assuming fundraising was part of the curriculum. Like, yeah. what surprised you about the process when you actually went from doing it sort of academically to actually fundraising in a in a in a in a, in a kind of real situation? I think, I think that what was surprising was not understanding the investment community and going back to what I was saying before that people have their thesis of what they're willing to invest in and that they're not willing to change that thesis. And, you know, uh, I'll put it this way. In a five-year period, uh, Rise has doubled uh, or more from when that initial investment round was asked for. So we clearly did a good job, but you know, you couldn't convince people that you could scale a service oriented business. You couldn't convince people. Uh, another big uh, challenge that we ran into was service oriented organizations are generally horrible at building technology. Uh, and there's a lot of learnings and a whole nother meaning I could explain why. And we actually are phenomenal at building technology. And I couldn't convince them of that. You know, like my big point was, so what an amazing differentiator. We're going to go up against service companies that are not good at building technology and we are good at building technology. Wouldn't that be a reason to invest? But 
they just had these preconceived notions that you couldn't really get around. How would you characterize the private equity investor, the people that you were kind of pitching? If you could use adjectives to describe them, what would you, what would you choose? You know, I, I don't know if I'd have one bucket. You know, so there were there were some people that I'll consider followers. You know, where I had one one group that was basically we're in if these people are in. And then those people went in and then those people went out. And so they went out. And so whatever those people did, they did. And I think they thought of that other group as their due diligence arm. Uh, I think it's like any other business. I met some incredibly impressive, really sophisticated people that I learned a ton about. And some people I wondered like, how are these people doing as well as they're doing? Like I, you know, it was like a head scratcher of, you know, their methodology just doesn't seem to be overly sophisticated. Yeah. You know, you shared earlier uh, that you didn't really have an exit strategy yet. I've heard from other entrepreneurs and, and certainly investors that once you take that first round of, of outside money, whether it's from yeah. friends, family, or in your case, institutional investors, the clock starts ticking, right? Absolutely. In, in the, you know, in, in, did you feel that? I, you know, I don't know if I felt the clock ticking. Like, Quad is amazing. They are a wonderful partner. They're very patient. Uh, there was no pressure on them. They're not looking to sell rise, you know, as far as I know. So, you know, it, it's not like a private equity where they have limited partners and they have a time period where they have to give money back to the LPs. So that was one of the reasons why I chose a strategic. But once the cap table changes and you have responsibilities to all these other stakeholders, your mindset does change. In what way? I think you, you know, for me, I felt a, a huge responsibility to all the shareholders and wanting to maximize value. Uh, and so that's one way. But the other way is you recognize that at some point, you know, they're going to want their money. Everybody's going to want their money and you have to provide, you know, liquidity in some way, shape or form uh, if you're going to take on a minority or a majority investor. When you say all the shareholders, uh, I'm confused about that because I think of Quad as being one shareholder, but are there multiple, are, are you talking was, about the limited partner? There was, a, there was a few employees that had shares in the company. And then there was a, a friends and family round that got grouped into that 2016 round. Okay. Got it. So you've got quads some friends and family, a couple of employees with some stakes. Yeah. Got it. Okay. And then you felt that responsibility of like, I got to get a return for these guys. Yeah. Yeah. What, what happened in in the window between you mentioned 2016 is when you raised the the first round and then you actually exited the majority position in in 2018. Yep. What happened in that window in the in the business? You know, I mean, we had tremendous growth, uh, which was great. And then you know, look, you don't know who your partner is going to be until you know what, who your partner is going to be, and you know, quad you know, going all the way up to the CEO, Joel Quadracci, to Eric Ashworth and Kelly Vanderboom, who were on the board with me. They're all just fabulous people. You know, they, they truly care. They're going to have your back when things are tough. Like, they're just great people. And I felt really good about working with them and deepening the relationship. And, 
So, um, you know, so it, it just felt like not only was the time right, but we also needed more investments. And, um, and so, you know, I decided to, you know, jump in with them and, and go that route. How did it work with the, the cash you got from selling the first tranche of equity? Yeah. Um, are you able, like, I, I've never done that. So I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Are you able to pull out some of that money uh, and put in your genes personally, or does it all just roll into the growth of the company? Like, no, you, how does that work? That's actually very common. So there's a, there are a bunch, I'll go to the private equity route, but there are a bunch yeah. of growth equity investors. And they recognize, you know, when you start your company, you know, your, your company has basically no value, right? You know, I started with $10,000. So I guess the value was $10,000. All of a sudden, you know, over, you know, 12 years, all of my wealth is tied up into a private non-liquid asset. And so it's very common for growth equity investors to come in and they will, um, they will invest in the company, but also help you reduce that risk so that, you know, you do not have everything tied up into one asset. So let's just do the math on a hypothetical. I, this isn't your company. I want to make clear that we're not talking about your company, but just so I understand this growth capital thing. So let's say you've got a, you built your business from 10,000 to 10 million. It's, it's yep. 10 million in revenue and you're going to trade at one times revenue. So the valuation is 10 million bucks. Yeah. Pro, uh, growth capital comes in and says, okay, we're going to buy a minority stake 30%. Yeah. So they're going to give you 3 million bucks. Yeah. Do you get to put the 3 million bucks in your jeans? No, you get no. to put a portion of the $3 million. I mean, How do you determine me, what portion? Let me, let me rephrase that. Possibly, you know, it all depends on the negotiation. Generally though, a growth equity investor wants as much money as possible to go into the business to fuel the growth. So, uh, you know, would it be half a million out of the 3 million? Would it be a million out of the 3 million? You know, it, uh, it really depends on the negotiations. It also depends on who the entrepreneur is, where they are in their stage of life, what, what their reasons, why they want to take the money, you know? So, uh, so, you know, those are the, the things that you need to think about, you know? What is that called? Like in your scenario, in that scenario, you just described where- Called a secondary. Raised... What's that? It's called a secondary. So like when you, when you take investments and some of it goes into you, I, I believe the technical term is a secondary that goes into the pocket of the uh, shareholder. Got it. The 500K or the, or the example that we yeah. just talked about. Yeah. yeah. Because I would think you'd have to have a pretty good secondary because you know, you're giving up. Yes, you've got some growth capital, but I mean, you've grown to 125 employees yeah. on your own. You know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you're giving up the vision of just dying in your, you know, desk kind of idea. So I would have thought that the secondary would have had to have been pretty meaty to, to, to be worth it, if that makes sense. You know, I, without going into the details, once again, I'm a builder. So, you know, my goal was to build something special and to build a large organization. So uh, to me, you know, the secondary could be important, but also building the company was important. So I'm not going to give you any clues in the ratio. Yeah, yeah, no, to totally fine. Yeah. I get it, and and you, I think you raised a really interesting point about the age of the owner, right? Like if you're 65, yeah. that might feel differently if you're 35. Exactly. You know that, and that makes sense. That's 
that's good. Okay. So we take, you take the round friends and family quad, the business grows like stink. What triggered you to want to sell? I mean, did they have an option to buy the majority stake when they invested in the first round? Is that what triggered no, the second it, round? Or? No, they, they did not. So we approached them in the second round uh, and they, they then chose to invest, but it, they did not have an option. Uh, but then when they did buy majority ownership, I was put on earnout for a time period. Uh, and so, you know, what it really came down to, you know, was I made the decision, you know, I stepped down last year, April 1 was my first day of not being the CEO of Rise Interactive. I made the decision about October uh, before that, that I was going to do this, you know, and at that point, basically my wife and I were the only ones who knew that I was going to be doing this. Um, doing this meaning I was going to sell the company and step down as CEO. And what triggered that for you? It really came down to every year in January. Like I, I always call the first business day of the year game day. And every year I'm so excited for game day. You know, I spend six months worth of planning on what are we going to do to make the next year amazing. And when I was starting to look at the playbook, the playbook started to feel very similar to the year before, which felt very similar to the year before. And all of a sudden, like, I know for a fact that Rides will have an amazing year this year. Like we have a playbook that is just solidified and solid and we know how to invest our money incredibly well and we know how to take care of our people and we know how to take care of our clients. Um, but for me, the complexity um, just really wasn't there anymore. You know, and I wanted to personally grow and figure out what's the next strategic thing. So I, you know, knowing that I just wasn't really excited about the playbook, you know, I, I decided that it was time. You're bored. Yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't say I was bored. It's, I, you know, what I would just say, there's a difference between being bored and not being challenged. You know, it's like, yeah. I really, uh, I really want, I love complexity is the best way I could put it. I like being able to figure out how to do things new and I needed a new playbook. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened when you came to that realization? Take me through the next sequence of events when you came to the realization I'm just, my heart's not in it anymore. I need a new playbook. Well, well the first what thing the is, I, the first thing I decided was, was I going to sell or not? And when I said I want to sell, then I was like, well, do I want to run the company? Is this what I want to do with my time? And it came all down to this complexity aspect. Um, and what I would say is the time period from when I decided to the time period when I left was actually a very unpleasant time. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's just stressful knowing you're going to be doing something. And, you know, from October to January, quad didn't know. Uh, so I was like, I'm sitting there, I'm nervous about that conversation. Uh, and then from January to March, the employees didn't know. And I'm nervous about that conversation. And then you're nervous about the health of your business and how's it going to do, even though you know, it's going to do great. So it's just a, it's a, a period of anxiety. Um, and so, um, I, I would say that, you know, and it, it's interesting. I've had a lot of CEOs call me up who are in the process of selling their business and asking me what it's like. And what I explained was this time period where, 
you know, if you think about it, for 16 years, this is all I've known. Besides my family, you know, I've invested like my heart and soul into this thing. And so it's very hard to see life after this company. And what I learned is that there's just a lot of things I like doing. You know, it was like life is going to be just fine. And, you know, I'm actually incredibly happy now. I don't have that same anxiety. You know, it all kind of left, I'd say probably about a month after uh, leaving Rise. Not to mention, I never thought me leaving Rise would start a pandemic. You know, I I shouldn't laugh. I I get the timing for sure. So let's get into the mechanics itself. So you had a minority shareholder in quad and some other friends and family and, um, a couple of staff. Yeah. Did you have a, did you still have control? Like, were you able to control who you sold to? Um, when I, up until I sold majority ownership. Yes. Okay. So yeah, you had minority shareholders, but you still had the majority of the voting rights. Yeah, when we sold a majority ownership to Quad, we put a board together. We had an operating agreement. They, uh, you know, and they had three seats. I had two seats on the board. So they really controlled everything after that, you know, and I had, I mean, as I said, they they are a wonderful partner. As long as I lived within the operating agreement, you know, they really left me alone. So did you shop the business to other potential acquirers? I did did not. Go directly to Quad. Okay, so how did that conversation go? You know, I think it went incredibly well. You know, I mean, first of all, uh, I've had two years of working with these people. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, when you have a good partner, when you have a good partner, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they're honest, they're wonderful people. They will come to your side when you need them to, you know. So, it, it was an easy conversation, you know. And How'd you handle it? Like, what, was the, what, what was your opening line? So... Um, you know, I think I just said like, you know, look, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for bigger investments and looking to do some things. And I talked to them about the things I wanted to do and they were on board and, you know, it, it probably took a couple months of time to get to it, but, you know, ultimately, um, we ended up doing it. I think a really good deal for all parties. Did you consider shopping it? And, and if so, why, why not? If uh, not, why not? You know, it, you know, what I would say is that when you have the right partner, you don't need to shop it. So, you know, that, that's the, you know, when you, I recognize that, yes, you can go hire an investment banker, you can go shop these things, but you, you don't know what you're going to get until you know what you get. And in every single company you get involved with, there are going to be pluses and there's going to be minuses within that company. And, you know, I knew what I had. I know, I know the quality of the people. I know that they're trustworthy. Um, and so that's really, you know, it wasn't, there was no thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we can't talk about the, the actual value of the transaction. Yeah. I would be curious, however, the actual multiple that was used in the 2016 transaction did that change in the 2018 transaction or was that roughly the same uh, or, or no, lower? It, it was more, you know, 
Quad is a very EBITDA-focused organization, and we, we moved to, I would say, more structured, similar uh, compensation structure of a typical agency. So in the, in the first round, it was you're making the case that, look, we're investing in a truckload in marketing. Let's yeah. use a valuation of, uh, you know, based on revenue. Yeah. Second time, it was more of a multiple of profit. Yep. Got it. And were you focused like between 2016 and 2018, like had you, did you stop investing in sales and marketing in an effort to maximize EBITDA or? No, definitely not. Um, you know, but we, we, you know, we focused on putting the numbers together, fueling the growth of the organization. And, you know, we got to the point where, you know, we, it, the way we designed it in terms of the deal, you know, it became an EBITDA focused deal. Got it. Got it. And then you mentioned the earnout. So did they buy the hundred percent of the remaining shares and then put you on an earnout or did you keep some shares or how did that? No, I, I kept shares and the earnout was structured based on EBITDA as well. Got it. How long was the earnout? Uh, two years. What was that like? Um, you know, it, it's good and bad. You know, um, what I would say is you're incredibly disciplined, you're incredibly focused on, you know, the investments you need to make, uh, the health of the business. You know, I think we did a really good balance of, you know, of continuing to invest in the growth of the organization, continuing to invest in sales and marketing. But we, we added, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned from Quad is they are brilliant when it comes to financial discipline and the structure of how to run a company. I would say that in the last two years, I learned more about financial management um, than my 14 years prior to that. And it's really thankful to Quad. Uh, so it, it, was a, it was a good time period. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I yeah. imagine it was tough because for 14 years, you called your own shots, you bootstrapped. If every... I wasn't dotted, every T wasn't crossed. It wasn't that big a deal. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this very, very disciplined financial manager. That can't have been easy. You know what? What, what I found was I, I really wasn't that hard. You know, if, if, I, was, if I would take one, one complaint, it's that uh, the speed that a small company runs versus a large company, you know, that there's... Uh, more decision-making and more process that has to go through to get things done. But ultimately, they really left us alone and they really allowed us to, you know, run the business. You know, the numbers were really good, so I don't know what it would have been like if it wasn't. Um, You know, but what I would say is, you know, the very first board meeting that we had, you know, and you're kind of nervous, you're going into no board meeting to your first board meeting ever, you know, they explained that the goal of the board was for them to figure out ways to help us. You know, what an amazing board to have. You know, like that's a, that's a really cool feeling when you're anxious and you don't know what you're getting into. And, you know, that was the opening attitude of, can we make phone calls for you? Can we, you know, leverage any of the resources we have? Like we, we, we are here to help you. So, you know, I, I felt that we had, uh, as I've said, a solid partner that was there to really, you know, 
uh, had the best interest and really wanted to see good things happen. You know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this will have heard of the term earn out. That's something that, yeah. that we've talked a lot about on the show. Um, however, when it gets into the, the, the mechanics, there's probably, it's a bit fuzzy. So in terms of an earn out, um, was yours like kind of all or nothing? Like if, if you hit the bogey, you got everything. If you, if you came, you know, within an inch of it, you got nothing. Or was it sort of staged, you know, 80% if you hit this, 90% if you hit that? Like, how did you guys structure it that way? It was incentivized where, um, you know, basically my big fear is being a minority shareholder in a major, you know, with, uh, in still a private company, you know, so that we had good controls in terms of, you know, uh, liquidity options. It, it really came down to, um, it really came down to, you know, uh, as, as you stay longer, the multiple grows, you know, so there's, there's incentive to stay longer. Hmm. I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Yeah. Because of course they want you to stay. Were yeah. you tempted to stay past the two years? Would, would the multiple have grown even more if you'd I, stay? You know, I, I was tempted, you know, I think it really came down to, um, it really came down to a couple of things going on with me personally at that time and, uh, and the complexity that I talked to you about you know, mm -hmm. which was really kind of the, the major decision makers behind it. I've never heard the term operating agreement. I think I've actually heard it, but I have no clue what it is. Yeah. What is an operating agreement? And what, you know, if you were coaching an entrepreneur to drafting an operating agreement, what, what should yeah. be in it? You know, so for example, how much, how much can I invest as a CEO without board approval? Uh, you know, can I hire anybody I want or do I need board approval for hiring? Can I give raises? Can I give promotions? Uh, all of those things uh, are structured of what does the board have to approve versus what control does the CEO have? Uh, so in our scenario, there was a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility in the operating agreement that gave me the control to run the business without having to go to the board for every decision. And was that operating agreement written back in 2016 with the minority investment or was it written? In no, we did not have a board. We did not have a board until they took majority ownership. Got so, 2018. Yeah. 2018. Got it. Got it. And that's when the operating agreement becomes exceptionally important because you've got to decide how you interact with the board. Yep. That's helpful. You can tell I've never had a board. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is fantastic. I've, I've learned a ton yeah. and uh, I'm really grateful for you sharing uh, yeah. this with such candor. I mean, like, so you sold your company. Did you buy yourself a trophy? Was there like, I talked to a guy yesterday. I said, what did you buy? <laughs> he kind of squeamishly said, well, I bought a boat. And I was like, oh, what kind of boat did you buy? He said, well, a yacht. And I said, what kind of yacht did you buy? He said, well, a 60-foot yacht. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's good. So tell me you bought a trophy. Give me a trophy. I, I built my dream home. Okay, great. Great. So, good for you. Good for you. Yeah. Your, uh, your spouse has sacrificed for years. And now yeah. you guys can enjoy this dream home together. That's fantastic. Did you do anything kind of like when you're building it, did you do anything that's kind of like, this is sort of, this is sort of crazy, but I'm just going to do it anyways, because. Yeah. You know, 
So when you build a company, you dream of what are you going to do after you sell? Okay. So as I mentioned before, I used to do marathons. My dream was I was going to take a year off and I was going to train for four races. I was going to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I was going to qualify for the Kona Ironman and I was going to do the Boston Marathon. I was going to do the Kona Ironman. That was my dream. That was in a younger version of my body. And uh, it gets easier the older you get, man. Exactly. So the, um, the other thing is, uh, you know, so my new dream was, you know what? I'm just going to do a lot of mini trips. I'm going to do, I have three daughters. I was going to do a mini trip with each daughter. I was going to do something with my wife. I was going to do something with my parents. Uh, and, you know, of course I sold in the middle of a pandemic and the entire world shut down. And, you know, I mean, literally like golf courses are closed, restaurants are closed, like can't travel anywhere. So I never got to do any of those things, you know, that I was hoping to do. How has that been psychologically for you? Um, you know, I, I think it's, I've been okay. You know, I would say that, as I said, going back to that anxiety time period, like coming out of it, um, you know, I decided not to do um, an Ironman or a marathon, but I did train for a century bike ride. And I started training with my, you know, roommate from college where we started training and biking, you know, multiple times a week. And so uh, I, I spent a good amount of time doing that. Of course, when I went for the big bike ride, my bike broke and I ended up having to do the whole thing on a Peloton. Uh, <laughs> but man, you can't cut a break. Yeah. Uh, but all in all, you know, I enjoyed the summer despite all the things that are going on. You know, I feel very fortunate that we're all healthy and, you know, happy here um, during a pretty crazy time. But it's got to be tough. I mean, it's kind of like you look like as a kid you look forward to Christmas day for, you know, for 364 <laughs> days of the year. And, it, and yeah. it finally comes. It's like, there are all the presents under the tree. You just can't open any of them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, the, uh, this current CEO of rise, who is the president when I was there, you know, he said to me, he's like, you know, John, the, the really thing that I'm sad about is that you didn't take any time for yourself, you know, cause I, I've jumped into a new business and, and I, um, and looking back, you know, he's probably right, you know, and I think that if the pandemic didn't hit, I would have taken more time for myself, but, you know, I didn't really know what to do with my time. So I didn't get that chance where I think a lot of other people, you know, will, you know, go take their 60 foot yacht around the world. <laughs> There's still time, man. So tell yeah. me briefly, what are you doing now and and where can people reach you uh absolutely so once i once i exited rise and i was you know having time to think about what i wanted to do next i really came across two major like insights the first is i love connecting with other entrepreneurs i don't care if you're a two-person organization or a massive multi-billion dollar organization I think being an entrepreneur is the hardest road traveled and I love connecting with people who have gone on that journey. The second thing is, um, the second thing is I recognize that what we did at Rise is a playbook that I think is very applicable to other organizations regardless of industry. 
And so we put uh, executive coaching services together to teach people how to grow their businesses faster, um, you know, generally uh, in the small to medium-sized space. Fantastic. Uh, and, and, and the best way to reach you. Yeah, um, it's, yeah go ahead. Our, our website is ramseyinnovations.com. So the company's called Ramsey Innovations. And then um, you can also follow me on LinkedIn. So John Morris is the name and I put out daily business growth tips. Fantastic. And John is J-O-N. That's right. As opposed to, yeah. I so save a letter. <laughs> and we'll put that in the show notes as well at builttosell.com yeah. so you can get all that there. Well, John, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate being on here. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.